This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, COVID numbers in schools are again down, but there's a caveat in those numbers. And enrollment at schools is down for the second year in a row. Entergy's shareholders have taken in $1.5 billion in dividends since the pandemic began, even as customer bills rise. And later, we speak with Brandon Jackson, who was granted parole last week after serving over 25 years on a split jury conviction. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hey, Charles. Good morning. And later we'll speak to criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, along with special guest Brandon Jackson. When the district presented COVID numbers in its routine weekly report at the end of January, you noticed there were zero cases and zero quarantines at KIPP's nine schools, which has over 6,000 students in its group. It's the district's largest. What did they say about those numbers? It's surely raised eyebrows. Immediately after we saw that we reached out both to KIPP and to the district, um, KIPP said they had submitted their um, results, you know, both cases and quarantines. Um, and, you know, kind of their hypothesis from their risk director, director of risk in the network was that because the district had maybe switched systems recently, they had apparently moved from a, a Google form system for each case to an email system, and then they had switched back. Um, and they did that during the Omicron wave because schools were having to submit so many cases that it was easier for them to just submit a single email versus a Google form for every single student. Um, kind of Kip's hypothesis was that, you know, maybe there was a something, there was a wrinkle in that switch back. Um, mm. And the only thing the district would tell us was that they thought uh, or that there was a, you know, there was an issue with Kip's submissions. And that was basically all they would say. Then they had some justification of timing too, right? So they, the the district will always tell us, and I mean this is this is true to some extent, but there's no possible way you can expect a six thousand student charter network to have zero cases and zero quarantines. It doesn't make any sense, right? But the district will always say, you know, there can be up to a seventy two hour delay between testing or between you know people finding out and notifying the school and notifying the district. So there are several steps that have to happen. But if that's true, there would be delays from the previous week that would potentially be showing up. Right. Um, another thing that KIPP's director of risk pointed out to us, which I think is very interesting and is definitely going to change the way we see numbers every week. When the district gets data, they want to know what is the end date of the, the, the five-day exposure period. You know, when is a kid out of quarantine versus what was the date they tested positive. Right. Say you test on a Wednesday. The result doesn't come back until Friday. That means they're out of the quarantine period on Sunday. So that data is never going to show up. You spoke with an expert who had suggestions for the district's data reporting. How could it be improved? Sounds like there's lots yeah, of so places. We, we talked to Dr. Susan Hassig at Tulane University. She's an epidemiologist and a professor there. Um, she had a pretty simple suggestion. That is something that I hope the district takes to heart and implements which is instead of having a zero in the field, if a school does not report any information, um, is using a non-numeric inputs and having something such as a quote NR for non-report or not reported. 
Um, that way the district would easily be able to tell if, you know, no information had come in versus if KIPP actually had zeros in every single field, which, you know, seems implausible. Yeah, so basically the, the way they're doing things right now um, is, you know, maybe maybe not what you would consider a best practice from, you know, for, for a public health data reporting. It's, it's that if you don't have any cases or quarantines, you just don't send in any report at all, which means that as far as the district is concerned, if they don't get any report from a school, the assumption is that it's a zero. It's not that that they that they forgot to send in the report. It's not that it's not that they you know had some trouble with the, the Google web form that uh, that the district uses. Um, the district and you know everyone reading the reports assumes this school just has zero cases or quarantines. Mm. Um, and Hassig, Dr. Hassig is saying the better thing to do would be to require every school to send in a weekly report whether or not they have cases. And then the district can easily dif differentiate between the schools that actually have zero cases and the schools that simply failed to report. The, okay. the other thing, the other thing that we that 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 we noticed that that got us that got Marta asking questions about this was there was the a difference, you know, quite a significant difference between the numbers uh, of of school cases in Orleans Parish that the state was reporting and what the NOLA Public Schools District was reporting for the same week. Um, basically, so the state puts out a report every Wednesday that shows cases in schools in every parish, but it doesn't, it doesn't break out which school had cases. It doesn't say, you know, which schools are, which reporting schools are private and which are public. They keep all of that confidential. Um, there's some, uh, there's some, you know, exemption in, I, I'm not sure if it's federal state law that they don't have to release data, you know, they don't have to release, uh, you know, that level of granular data for if they're conduct conducting an epidemi epidemiological investigation. Um, so this a uh, couple of weeks ago, the state was reporting something like 800 cases for that week at schools in Orleans Parish. And the district, the NOLA Public Schools District was only reporting, it was reporting fewer than 400. Um, the problem with that is First of all, the NOLA Public Schools District, their reporting window is a two-week time frame, and the state's is only one week. The other problem is that even taking the account, into account that the state report could include private schools and uh, charter schools run by the state, it's still, you know, it's still the case that the, the, the majority of schools in Orleans Parish are NOLA Public Schools. Not only that, but NOLA Public Schools are are conducting surveillance testing and private schools aren't. Um, so it seemed it seemed off. Now we haven't gotten a full explanation on that disparity because, um, in part, because the state's data, as I mentioned, is is uh, blocked off from public view. Okay, Marta. Also in schools. Enrollment in New Orleans public schools has dropped for the second year in a row from about 45,000 students last year to just under 44,000 this year. That's a 2.3% drop following a 3.2% decrease the year prior. What's happening there generally? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a trend we're seeing across the country. It's also a trend we're seeing across the state, but um, there are a number of factors that are when we're talking about enrollment in public schools, obviously we're talking about, you know, five-year-old to 18-year-old. So we're a few years out, but 
Um, we're seeing a declining birth rate. Um, and, you know, other factors like that are what we're finally seeing play out now. What is interesting in the district is that, you know, they had planned and they really thought there was going to be a, a larger increase. So now they're going to have to backpedal and really, you know, figure out how can they best serve uh, students with, with this drop that they apparently didn't foresee. This is all happening at, with the backdrop of this right-sizing plan that they're also looking at. The changing school configurations is difficult in an all-charter district. They are talking about um, using these numbers to sort of help with that. Can you talk about what you learned? Yeah, so we uh, this year, you know, the district operates about or authorizes roughly 80 schools. Um, four are going to be closing, two due to low academic performance, and then two just up and decided to close due to low enrollment, um, which, you know, is kind of a gift to the district, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. because um, in this all-charter net, in this all-charter system, it, the district can't just up and close schools like a normal district would do. You know, they have a contract. If you try to close a school, that uh, school can sue you, which we've seen happen in the past. Um, so the district is trying to, quote, right-size, trying to make sure that, um, you know, there aren't empty seats in buildings. Uh, basically, what they're saying right now is there are 3,000 empty seats in buildings. And when you think about that, you're you're not running a cost-effective school if you have um, if you have those empty seats. If you have excess seats in a school, what you want is a, a good operational capacity at each school because you're paying for operation costs at a facility, right? You got to keep the lights on. You have to pay teachers. Um, but if you're if you, if you're spreading that out over too many schools, you're you're spending more money than you need to be. Okay, so they're looking at this as an opportunity to perhaps utilize some of the um, less old buildings and less um, decrepit is a little bit strong of a word here too. Well, some... I think you're you're you might be on the nose there. There are <laughs> they said that ten of their they do say that ten of their buildings would be responsible for 60% of their capital planning costs over the next 10 years. So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think you're that far off. Um, yeah. I mean, basically they, they went through and they did an assessment of, of the whole system of district owned buildings. And it was more or less like they, if, if I'm correct, Marta, they found 10 buildings wherein the cost of, of doing all the maintenance they need to do on the buildings would be greater than the value of the buildings themselves. Wow. And that might actually be a higher number, but there are just there are ten that stick out significantly for how much that that ratio. Right. Explain the process where a school might say, "Hey, we'd like to move our program to a different facility." How does it work? Yeah, so this is all this is kind of part of this uh, fuzzy part of uh, you know the district allegedly running an all charter district, but this is uh, these are decisions that are made within the administration. So this is kind of where they centralize some of those things and streamline them um, and make the decisions out of the public eye. What's gonna happen is anyone in those 10 buildings deemed more expensive to keep up than replace can apply to move into one of these three buildings that's gonna open up. What I kind of was saying earlier is that the same thing goes here where we have this district that's running an all charter system and they, they can't make these decisions to, you know, we're going to close the school down the street because it's the crappiest building in the city. Like, they can't really do that. So that's where it is unique. Um, the school has to, the, the program has to opt themselves in. 
Right. The program either has to fail and, and okay. close because okay. its contract won't be renewed or the program has to elect to close right. or the program has to want to move to a new building. Okay. Right. So, or they have to be in significant breach of contract. Which, which can happen a number of ways. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the district tries to keep closer, closer eye on people because of that reason or, or decides to penalize things that they haven't penalized in the past at a, at a higher rate or, you know, a higher kind of warning level. That could be something to watch out for. Hmm. Board member Carlos Zerbagana, he said, you know, we're trying to make this district have better options for kids. So one of the things about this is that they're only letting existing programs move into these buildings. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you know, if we're trying to bring up the grade of the district, why wouldn't we let an A school replicate and open a new program in one of these buildings? Oh, right. Oh, so even opening it up beyond the schools in the worst condition. Right. Versus letting a C or D school move into a nicer building, which, you know, if you ask me, in my opinion, the whole heart of this district, the whole kind of which we've We've now moved away from a little bit, but the whole concept of this district is one that's based on competition, right? That's the charter system. It's based on school choice. And then you're kind of getting into these administrative decisions where that kind of goes away because you do at the end of the day have to think like a centralized district. Otherwise, things will be insane. But, you know, another thing I heard from a parent last night who said, I heard my school is applying to move into one of these buildings and I picked this school because it's Pro on this block. Proximity like, and neighborhood and... I made my choice. I, I did my school choice and I want to be in this building and now the school might move. So that's another interesting angle at play here. Location, if I remember correctly, it seems to be the, uh, the, uh, the, the second biggest factor in people's and how people choose what schools they apply to through one app after, after the school's letter grade. Think it a second. I would think staff too. You. Pick a you, chose, one yep, you choose where you work. You're choosing where your kids go. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, that's a big change. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, lens editor Charles Maldonado, and special guest Brandon Jackson. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Michael, in news with Entergy, despite a series of catastrophes, Entergy shareholder payouts have steadily increased over the last two years. They're totaling now $1.5 billion. At the same time, customers have faced rising bills, falling reliability, abandoned infrastructure investments, and some experts are saying it's the result of Entergy's efforts to influence regulators and shift the risks of the business onto its consumers. How did you get started on this story? Yeah, so, so this is a story I've kind of been working on for um, a little over a year. Um, and, and it kind of just goes to, to kind of what you were saying in your intro in that experience this series of disasters over the last two years, starting with the coronavirus pandemic, 
that have not only affected all of us, you know, deeply, but also affected Entergy, um, Entergy's finances um, very severely. You know, again, we had the pandemic, which led to a global recession. Um, we had a series of, of record-breaking hurricanes that caused billions of dollars of damage. We have um, gas prices rising. Um, you know, all of these factors that that you know are causing these financial difficulties for the company. Um, and they're coming out, you know, again, over the last two years and, and admitting that, you know, this is putting us in a precarious situation. Um, this is putting us, you know, in some financial difficulty. And, you know, throughout that period have been, you know, in many ways asking customers to shoulder that burden, um, you know, by raising bills, um, by cutting operations and maintenance. Um, and, and yet through all of this, the thing that I was noticing is that you know, every quarter Entergy issues these shareholder dividend payments and every single quarter they kind of maintained this upward trend the same way, you know, in, in fact, a little bit faster than they have, you know, in previous years. And so basically I, I've been trying to figure out, you know, how that's possible, how, you know, these dividend payments have you know, been able to kind of stay so steady while there's all this volatility on the customer side. Um, and it kind of was highlighted by a moment, you know, last month when um, Entergy um, had, had committed to um, financing a, a project for the Sewerage and Water Board, a pretty vital project that, that many saw as, you know, um, really important to shoring up our, our flood defense system. Um, and Entergy announced that it was pulling financing from the project um, due to, you know, the, the high cost of, of recovering from Hurricane Ida. Four days after that, um, the company issues a, um, a shareholder dividend that would, you know, ultimately was valued at 200, over $200 million. And those two announcements just back to back, you know, again, kind of highlighted this question that I've had for a little while now, which is, you know, again, um, why is there so much volatility on one side, but, but, you know, just such consistency on the shareholder side. The problem yeah. in this one is that there's a monopoly here. Talk about that tension. Well, yeah, I mean, so let me just start before Michael gets started. So, so basically what Michael gets into in the article, which is, which is pretty, pretty interesting stuff, is that this seems to be uh, this. So Entergy has been aggressively uh, raising its, its shareholder dividends, especially the past couple of years. But this is, this is a trend with companies like Entergy, companies that are, uh, that are established you know that 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 have a solid business but don't have a lot of growth potential. So you know if you're if you're investing if you're investing in Entergy, your return on investment just from purely you know a stock value perspective is going to be something you know like ten percent a year. Versus if you invest in you know Apple or Amazon, your stock you know has the potential to go up twenty or thirty percent a year. So the way they make up for that and attract investors is with this, these dividend payments. Yeah. And to even build off of that, you know, just to kind of give some of the, the bigger picture here is that, yeah, I mean, it, it, like Charles said, it's 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 widely perceived that, you know, a lot of the value of energy stock comes from these very, very steady dividends. And in order to main, maintain those payments, um, the company is shelling out a huge portion of its of its annual earnings. You know, we're talking about upwards of 60 percent of everything the company earns every year is is shipped out. Um, to shareholders in, in these kind of cash payments. Um, you know, you, you see other companies, you know, again, 
um, you know, high, mostly higher growth, higher growth potential companies, they'll take their earnings and they'll dump it all back into the company and, and try to open a new factory or, you know, invest back in the company for future profit. But, you know, again, you know, businesses like Entergy, especially these big utility monopolies um, that don't have huge growth. Yeah. Like Charles is saying, they, they pour a huge amount of their earnings into making sure that these dividends uh, may, uh, remain attractive. But to, to get to your question, you know, you know, like you're saying, it's not exactly shocking to see this type of behavior from a publicly traded company. Um, you know, we've all been customers of companies that screw us over in one way or another. Um, it's not exactly bizarre. But, I, you know, I, I do think that the key difference is that Entergy, um, like you said, is a monopoly, meaning that we have no choice to go elsewhere. If our prices continue to rise to the benefit of shareholders, we have no, we have no other option but to stay with Entergy. Um, you know, the, the other main difference is that it's not only a monopoly, it's a highly regulated monopoly. The reason why that's key is that, you know, Entergy's prices and profits are predetermined by its government regulators. And those government regulators are elected by Entergy's customers. Mm. So in this, in this case, at least hypothetically, Entergy's customers should have a pretty direct say in over what the company's prices should be. And, you know, in theory, that regulatory process is supposed to balance out what is good for a healthy company and what is fair to these customers that have no other option. And so we talked to a local utility advocate, uh, Logan Burke, and, and kind of what she pointed out is that, you know, while it's not exactly shocking to see this type of behavior from a publicly traded company, um, what makes it different in this case is that it's all being achieved within a regulatory relationship. It's not being earned on a competitive free market. The way that, you know, Entergy and other utilities have been able to shift the risk of the business from their shareholders to customers is by winning favorable regulations, um, you know, from public service commissions, from the New Orleans City Council. So, you know, again, this is not a company that has gone out and, and, and navigated the free market and, and, you know, found a price point that, that was perfect and, and, you know, made a product that was perfect and attracted all these customers. No, in this case, they have a guaranteed monopoly over all the customers in our region, and their prices are set in advance in order to reach a pre-approved profit. So again, you know, the, the question becomes, if we have these regulators that are supposed to set our price right. prices in order to create, you know, a fair shake, how have we ended up in this situation where when there's a hurricane, our bills go up, but shareholders don't feel any. You know, what, stri what strikes me about this story is that, is that in many ways, Entergy really has all the benefits being a private shareholder-owned company, but really none of the risks of, of, of that. Like, so a good example in the article is the fuel rider they put on the bill, which is, you know, when the cost of, of fuel, fuel goes up, your, your bill goes up proportionally rather than regulars, regulators demanding that, you know, there's, there's a flat fuel fee on each bill where the customers are directly exposed to the volatility of the, the fuel market. Now, that's something that a private company could do when they have, when costs of fuel, their fuel go up. Um, but then they assume the risk of people not buying their product when the price goes up because of the cost of fuel goes up. Energy does not have that risk. The you know we have to we have to buy this product. Right, and, and, and the flip side to what Charles is saying is that you know from a customer's perspective, the reason why you go with a private investor-owned company instead of a you know a publicly-owned utility is 
you know, ostensibly to get the efficiency of the free market, right? That That's the reason why we don't want government providing every single service we have is that there are often a lot of inefficiencies and problems in government operations. So you go to the market in order to have a company that is presumably going to run more efficiently. In this case, you know, there's an argument that on the one hand, you know, we're paying the price of, of getting this service by a public company. And, and, and that price is in the form of, you know, number one, yielding 60% of the company's earnings every year. Um, you know, it, I just want to make a quick note. When we're talking about the company's earnings, I mean, all of that money, almost every single cent of it comes from customer bills. So, you know, when we're talking about these, there's no other place that Entergy makes money. Yeah, All the money they make is directly off your bills. So that's just a quick side note. But, you know, what, what we pay as customers in order to have, you know, a private company operate our, our electric uh, grid is is you know these huge dividends that get paid out you know plus you know large executive compensation and and things of that sort um and i think the question here is what are we really getting in return um you know and i think that one really interesting point that that some energy critics you know brought was that some of the ways that energy has insulated its itself from risk actually leads to it making worse decisions as a company and so, you know, we look at, for example, storm riders, you might see on your bill, you know, um, I think still today we have a rider on our bills for Hurricane Isaac, basically all the money it takes to recover after a hurricane, that money is put on your bill as, as one of these kind of add on costs. And critics of this system will argue that because energy shareholders are insulated from the risk of a hurricane, that they're not going to be as proactive about hardening a grid and hardening our system because if it's all destroyed in a hurricane they're going to be able to rebuild it and they're going to easily recover costs um, a similar argument was made about these gas riders which basically puts all the volatility of the gas market onto customers and again critics will argue that when energy is making a decision to build a solar farm versus a gas plant they'll be more you know inclined to go with the gas plant because the volatility, the future volatility of the gas market doesn't mean anything to their bottom line. Um, so in that way, not having to share the risk actually reverses some of the like market efficiencies, some of the efficiencies that you're supposed to gain by working through, you know, a, a, a for profit company. Just just to give you the, the, the you know, we talked a lot about what critics are saying. What Entergy will say when approached on this is, you know, look, we have to make very large capital investments in order to uh, improve our systems and just keep them operating. If we were to lower our dividend payments um, and attract fewer invest investors, uh, you know, have have less cash on hand, we would have to borrow more. We'd have to we'd have to issue more bonds, and on top of that, uh, the the costs of uh, financing those bonds would go up because we would have less cash. So. If we were to do that, the customers would be exposed and possibly more exposed that way. Now, a couple of the experts Michael talked to, who've worked in uh, utilities regulation, um, said said you know they understand that argument intellectually, um, but they do not buy the argument that it would cost that would it would ultimately be more for uh, it would be more money for customers for energy to take on more and more expensive debt versus um, paying out, you know, 
two thirds of their earnings to uh, to di- to uh, to shareholders. Right. Right. And, and to kind of like put that in simple math, you know, uh, one, this is an oversimplification, but you know, would those increased costs be over or under eight hundred million dollars, which is what we pay out every single year in dividends, right? So you know, th- that's just kind of one simple way to think about it. And I think we're talking about really complicated stuff that you know, uh, you know, requires you know expertise in a bunch of different areas and. I think the argument over whether lowering dividends would ultimately benefit or or harm customers, um, you know, we're not going to be able to figure that out, you know, in this podcast. But I, I do think that the bigger point, maybe the more important point that was made was was perhaps why things are more likely to stay in the status quo. And that's because Entergy is making this argument that if they're forced to claw back their dividends, if they're forced to invest more earnings back in the company, that it's going to not only harm customers, but it could cause huge financial problems for the company that could cause, you know, cascading issues that could threaten, you know, the electric system itself. And, mm. and you know, when we're talking about our electric grid, you know, it, we're talking about a life or death resource for so, so many people. Um, and it's really not something you want to mess around with. And it's something that, again, is more complicated than what most things the city council has to deal with. And so, you know, the question becomes, okay, a bunch of experts say it would be better to do it this way, but the power company that knows the m- more than anybody is saying that's going to be a disaster. And so it, it comes down to are regulators really going to be willing to put the entire system at risk, you know, over this, over these potential be- benefits, um, you know, and it's not just, you know, people are going to, regulators, politicians are going to avoid that for their own political careers. But even outside of that, I mean, it really is scary to try and make changes like this, you know, to a system that is so important. So mm-hmm. Entergy also has an additional ace in the hole with the city council. Um, I, on top of the fact that for, for completely rational reasons, uh, regulators who are not experts in the field are going to prefer predictability, as Michael just t- said. Mm-hmm. Um, they Entergy has has the the other advantage of being the the single um, Fortune 500 company that is headquartered in the city of New Orleans, and um, the the prospect that they you know the Energy is not gonna is not gonna stop serving the city of New Orleans, but the prospect of losing of you know losing that marquee company um, is something that does that does scare um, city officials. I just wanted to add one more thing. Um, you know, we, we, we talked to an expert who I thought had kind of ended on a pretty interesting point, which is that, you know, to put this in context, for all the flaws of, of our electric system, for all the flaws of the, the system that we're in um, right now, the U.S. And, and even the Gulf South that has lower reliability than the rest of the U.S., still has more reliable electricity than a lot of the world. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that what this one advocate expert was saying was that although, yes, customers may be being screwed here, yes, there are ways that this could be way, way better, um, you know, could be why worse. shake up a system that's better than what most countries have at this point? I mean, so I, again, I, I do think that, you know, this comes down to consistency and safety versus whether you really want to challenge the system and, and you know, hopefully come up with something better, um, which is just kind of a hard, a hard choice. Okay, well, thanks, Michael. Thank you. I'm going to say goodbye to you guys now. Hey, Um, thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Carolyn. Talk talk to you later. Okay, bye. Bye.
Readers of The Lens and listeners to this podcast may have heard the story of Brandon Jackson, a Louisiana man who had been in prison for over 25 years on a non-unanimous jury verdict. He was granted parole last week. Jackson was the subject of an investigation by The Lens and Al Jazeera into the legacy of Louisiana's split jury law, under which people could be convicted of a crime and sentenced to life in prison, with as many as two of 12 jurors voting for acquittal. In 2020, Jackson's parole was denied when a single member of the three-member panel voted against granting it. He only needed a majority this time, but the panel voted unanimously for his release. Hey, Brandon, are you there? I'm right here. Hey, Brandon. Hey, Nick. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I know you've talked to Nick a bit, and um, we'll have him ask you some questions too, but um, I wanted to ask you a few questions if you don't mind. Oh, I don't mind. Okay. Are you in with your mama? Is that where you went? Yes, ma'am. That's where I'm at right now. Um, matter of fact, um, I just have to get in the bed. Well, when I, since I've been home, we've been doing the Bible study every morning, you know, and I just been sitting here listening to the words of wisdom, trying to help her get around, you know, because when I got incarcerated in '96, you know, she was running and running track, walking and everything else. Now she can barely get around. So I just been staying around the house, doing everything that I need to do. And um, like I, day before yesterday, I just got up and cleaned up the entire house and. She came in, she had got up, and uh, she walked through the door. The first thing she just started hollering me was, thank you, Jesus. I finally got me some help. Oh. Yeah. Oh, she must be so thrilled that you're home. Oh, she just can't be still. She just, that's my baby. And, um, I, you know, I, I already knew where my strength came from. So, you know, she she's standing alone, but she's thinking for thousands because she had taught school for so long and did so much for everybody else. And um, it just be, you know, so depressing when um, she wasn't really getting the help. She wasn't getting the help. She wasn't getting the help. She was supposed uh, to see. I was wondering if she's, if she, if what the first meal she made for you was if if you were dying for a particular meal and if she was going to make you oh, something. Oh, uh, uh, I had got out on the 11th, um, and um, the next morning uh, when I had woke up, I woke up by um, smell of some nice food. So she had a prepared me a steak, a baked potato, and a homemade salad. And, Aww. By the time she got to fixing her potato in the microwave, I was through. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, it's only there. been a few days. Um, have you even adjusted yet to the idea that you're that you're out? No, because um, I've uh, still been waking up like every time they count, you know, in prison. I don't even need a long clock. You know, I've been waking up at 4 a.m. I've been waking up at 3 I've I just been waking up every time. I just know they got counting. Um, I get counting. You know, like Jiffy went, it's, it's work all the time. But um, eventually it's going to save me. But the only thing that really, you know, just butterflies to my stomach is riding in the car. You know, you know, 
because I rode around for so long when I was put in the vehicle, I had chains on. So just to be able to sit in the car oh. with no chains on my feet, no chains on my hands, around my waist, a black box with a, 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 a lock on that, you know, right. weighing you down. You can't even scratch if you if you itching. You can't even do nothing. I'm just trying to, you know, just think about all that. You know, I'm adjusting. I'm trying to adjust the best way I can. Like I said, today when I went to my parole officer, it wasn't as bad as it was, you know, for the first couple of days. Um, and um, we're kind of, I'm going to tell you, though, I ain't got kind of scared, though, because when I left, you couldn't turn on red to the left, you know. You know, you can make, you can make a right turn. So when I, when I seen him turning, I kind of like jumped up like, you know, y'all, we can have a red, you turn on red. And, um, right. The driver turned around and said, no, you can turn to the left now on red. Then he showed me the green arrow, and I was like, oh, man, uh, I was just so terrified. I didn't know what to do. Right. But now that I know, you know I'm all right. When you, you met with your parole officer, I think, earlier today, do, do they help you with some of the mental and emotional adjustments that you have to make? Well, um, even though I was like a 25 years, um, I've never had a mental problem. Even when uh, I went to Angola and they kept me confined in a, a cell, you know, with um, TV, no radio. Mm. Uh, no written material, you know, nothing, just you in the cell, 24 hours a day. Uh, I stayed in the cell like that for five years straight. And um, I just been headstrong, but uh, we, we we spoke. And uh, I really I really like my parole officer. You know, he took the time to, you know, offer me any kind of support that I may need. And um, he liked the idea that I have and the things that I was trying to, um, put in process, process right now. It's just, you know, it's just being different. It's not coming out here, you know, being, um, met by, you know, the friends that I had, you know, back then is different, you know, but that's when I was, you know, off to other things. But, um, I, I love this feeling right here, you know, um, just being motivated of, you know, get to where I am because, I, just, I left for being a man behind me that I know it's your second chance. You know, it's just that the laws down here yep. are so messed. And um, they just need a voice. That's all. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the people that you left behind in prison. If um, when you were granted parole and when you left, was there um, a lot of celebration? And Yeah, it was, it was a lot of tears. And uh, when I came back, you know, I was just really surprised that I was waiting and asked me what had happened. And, you know, I had loved so many people. So, and um, what had got me was, you know, it was out of grace of God that uh, you, when a person makes parole, you know, they might have to wait two weeks, three weeks, uh, maybe a month, two months before you get released. But I was released immediately. And the warden was like, wow. you know, he had been a warden for so long, and they were like, we never seen that. Or they had the time to process the paper. And I told them, well, um, you need to look up in the sky and just understand the power of God. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't have photo for those. I mean, I, you know, I 
studio. I was just for that, but they rushed me out of there after I had got everything together. And um, I don't know if you guys see the the newspaper where they had, when I had received my first hug. Um, that was well, I can't even explain that. But it was just it was joy, you know. It, it's my joy. I weighed my happiness, you know, because it, when you're happy. That's only for a moment, you know. Happiness can leave, but you know, you feel you feel like a bone. Um, yeah, like I said, it just it just I don't know, it's just mind blowing just to be sitting in here with her, just be here helping her, and oh, uh, it's just a blessing. Mm. Did you, uh, over the course of the over twenty five years there, did you form any relationships that you think will last with? either other inmates or even some of the staff there, guards, or anyone that you feel like is a, a friend? Oh, yes, indeed. I'm going to always be, um, I'd say, responsive to them, you know, especially the ones that, like I said, I know I deserve a second chance because a lot of those men that's incarcerated, you know, um, they're being uh, marginalized and they're being oppressed, you know, especially here in Louisiana. So by me going through the things that I do and um, knowing what they're still going through, that's going to be on my mind. So um, they got a few that I, I know deserve to be out, especially the ones that fit. You know, one of my friends, uh, he got lupus. And he had uh, cancer, so mm. uh, um, and he's confined to a wheelchair. Can't do that. So you know, um, but um, I'm 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 gonna do my best to um, try to change these laws. You know that that that's my focus right now. That's my goal. You know, at least I know I ain't gonna be an awful change, but it's just the ones I do want to get changes on uh, the most appeal. Time crime of violence and what and um the non unanimous uh jury, you know, yeah. you know. Um uh, so that that that's what I'm on right now. When Nick contacted you and you did the interview with Nick at the lens and Al Jazeera and then it it turned into that uh T V show, did they show that in prison? Not yet. Have you have you seen it? I watched it last night. As a matter of fact, I watched it three times. <laughs> I'm again, and also I spoke about it. My um, my parole officer uh, wanted to see it, so uh, Jeremy Jeremy Young sent him the uh, the link today. You know, my yeah. parole officer had heard much about it. So you've only been out for a few days. Um, what besides being able to turn left on a red light? What else have you noticed? What's striking you as different? How 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 ran down a lot of these communities off. I mean, rolling around. I went and um, see my sister. And another thing stands out to me is you have so many homeless people just landed on the bench on the street. Mm. You have so many people just walking around talking to themselves. And I hey. You know, uh, hmm. they're the leaders. You know, why are you trying to do nothing? So my mom was like, baby, I see these people all the time. And I mean, everywhere we went, 
what I've seen. And another thing that really been standing out to me is all the violence. You know, like yesterday they had the shootings and because these kids have nothing to do. They don't have nothing set up for them. They don't have nothing in place for them to receive no education to, you know, just burn off their about Brandon was uh, sadly not alone in that he's not the only he was not the only person sitting behind bars that had been convicted by non-unanimous juries there was some news this week Louisiana Supreme Court decided to take up a case to determine whether or not hundreds of people still in prison on non-unanimous verdict should be entitled to new trials what what's going on with that yeah so um this week, the, the Supreme Court, as you said, the Louisiana Supreme Court decided to, to take a case. This is a, a 25-year-old uh, murder conviction of a man named Reginald Reddick. Um, he's been in prison for 25 years. The United States Supreme Court ruled non-unanimous juries unconstitutional, um, but they did not mandate that people who had been in prison um, for many years who have exhausted their appeal, people like Brandon, um, were entitled to new trials. But in that decision, they also said that the states could decide independently to grant new trials to those people. Um, so, so Reginald Reddick was actually granted a new trial by the district court, um, and that decision was upheld by the Court of Appeals, and now uh, the Supreme Court has, has decided to take it. So that, that decision will likely come... Uh, Come sometime this year, the the briefs are due, um, I believe, by April, and then there'll be there will be oral argument in the case, and then the Supreme Court will make a decision. So it could it, it, it's a big deal and something that advocates have been you know pushing the Supreme Court to take up for you know ever ever since the United States Supreme Court ruling um, last year. So right. And Brandon, you're continuing to petition for a new trial. Is that right? Yes. To vacate the conviction? Yes. That's, what that, that's right. That's what that fight is all about. Right now, um, even though I've been released, I'm still not free, you know, because I'm old until, um, I think, 2034. So um, I think the proper word is um, being um, I'm quasi-free. I think it's based on mm. Q-U-A-S-I. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so, you know, just saying that I'm free, that's an illusion. You know? so I'm not free because I got so I got so many stipulations that I got to uh, do. And if I, I mess up, that'll get an opportunity to try to revoke my parole. So that's why I've been trying to, I'm going to stay on top of that and do everything. I'm going to go above it, you know, to do what must be. What, what, what must need to be done. 
Brandon, do you have to pay parole a parole fee every month? Is that is that something that you have to do for uh, as a condition? Yes, I think uh, he told me the first payment would be $68 every payment after that. You have any final thoughts about your experience or ideas of what you might want to do next? Any traveling you might want to do? Louisiana politics, to me, remain in a um, sensitive and ignorant of the great instance. You know, even the non unanimous jury place, knowing that it was put in place to, you know, keep a already oppressed race broken. So, uh, just helping those 1,500 guys that's trying to fight for the same freedom that the 1,500 receive. That's that that's my main focus right now. Mm. So, but after you know, I get a lot of those things done, and um, I'm able to uh, relax. I'm gonna try to, you know, I want this COVID over, with and they feel like we can travel. Would probably be down the line. You know, I probably I, I wouldn't mind, you know, taking my mom on a cruise. Oh. You know, I you know, build my income up. I ain't gonna do nothing without her. You know, twenty five years, you know, away from your mom. Um, not knowing how much time I got left. You know, just want to spend out much time with her. I keep. Well, Brandon Jackson, thank you so much, and. Thank you for your time. And I'm looking at the picture of you and your mom right now, and I'm seeing the smile on her face and yours and wishing you all the best. I appreciate you. And um, thank you. I want to thank all of you. Uh, I got to tell everybody, um, keep God first. If you get knocked down, fall on your back because if you can, you can get up. Just uh, keep your put your faith on. God ain't gonna let you down, man. We'll never let you down. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, Brandon. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, Lens editor Charles Maldonado, and special guest Brandon Jackson. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.